<laughs> Hi, everybody. How are we doing today? Pretty good, thank you. Good, good. We're going to dig into uh, these texts for the Transfiguration Sunday. Um, Jules is preaching, but out for today. And uh, we're going to look at Exodus and Matthew. So Rebecca has informed me that she is going to take us on a whirlwind journey through Exodus chapter 24 and probably several other things. And I don't expect us to get to Matthew. We will. <laughs> I'll be quiet. I'm ready to go. Let's go, Rebecca. So good. So let's, let's roll with Exodus 24. What precedes it, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, and then all kinds of laws, most of which in the chapters in between 20 and 24, have to do with the ancient Near Eastern laws. If an ox gores and, you know, it killed somebody, it'd be paid, but if it was known to gore, and anyhow, all sorts of ancient laws are there. Then you have Exodus 24. After Exodus 24, you get God telling Moses how to build the synagogue, how to build the great temple. And he gives him all these instructions about altars. Exodus 24 is unique. It stands out in the middle. It has a lot to do with Matthew. Uh, which chapter is it? The Transfiguration? 17. Matthew 17. But it's so much more dramatic than we're allowed to see that I wanted to give you the parts that we unfortunately get left out. So I've asked Joan to read verses 1 and 2 and 9 through 11. Listen for the echoes in what Joan reads. Deborah to read 12 through 18. And Tanner to read what is for me the heart of this, which is 3 through 8. Listen for words that you've heard before. Listen for things that will connect us with the Newer Testament, because they're all over this chapter. And yet it's very strange, and it's written with different strands. So, Joan, would you lead us off 1 through 2? Yes. And Tanner with 3 through 8. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want me to read my two sections at one time? No. Oh, no, no, no. Let's read the sequence. chapter in order. Thank you. Okay. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship at a distance. Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words of the Lord, all the words that that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up twelve pillars corresponding to the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the people who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed oxen as offerings of well-being to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he dashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Moses took the blood and dashed it on the people and said, See the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the Lord, the God of Israel. Under his feet there was something like a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Also, they beheld God 
and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commands I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and here are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on as he went up the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Did you hear the echo in what Joan read? And the very different situation that Tanner read. And then kind of the conclusion, finishing this, and after Moses goes into that cloud, he'll be given instructions for how to construct the tabernacle. There's something very odd going on in chapter 24. It's a break in the law and the commandments and the instructions on what to do. Did anything sound familiar? The 40 days and 40 nights. 40 like days no. and 40 nights, absolutely. When Jesus went in the desert. That will come up many times. Thank you, absolutely. Um, is, is 40 sort of a generic term for a really long time. A really long time and a complete time, a very specific time, a time for a certain purpose. Oh, yes, it is. Seven, forty, seventy, these are formulaic numbers, if you will. Um, but yes, a completion of a particular task. I, I feel like, like, I feel sort of a little familiar with this, but as I read it today, I, like, totally like was not had not been thinking that that first he was hanging out in the cloud for six days or whatever and then on the seventh day the Lord called to him like I feel like that's not part of my understanding of that and good for you because what you've got here are at least two different sets of editors written probably 500 years or so apart and do we know this no we don't but long ago when people first started reading the Bible and with real clear intention, how we read the Bible has changed dramatically over the centuries. I mean, everything was analogous to something else in the beginning. But people with a close understanding were reading this thing, and they thought, if Moses read the first five books, and it says he did, well, it kind of leans in that direction. How then did Moses write about his own death? Mm-hmm. And when you read with close attention the story of the flood, Verses will tell you that we animals went in two by two, male and female, or there were seven pair of clean animals and one pair of unclean animals, that's 16. Or it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, one of those formulated good numbers, or 150 days. It just depends on which part of the flood story you're reading. So how on earth could this happen? Well, about 120 years ago or so, a gentleman called um, Wellhausen 
said that, well, there was this older author, the Yahwist, and the word, the holy name for God, is used predominantly in these sections, and you get talking snakes and the tree of life and Eden and the underground rivers, lots of ancient Near Eastern stuff. And that must be the oldest, and we'll call that the Yahwist. And then there's another one, we'll put that about 950 BCE, and then there's another one who uses the word Elohim a lot, plural, but means a singular god, or multiple gods, depending on context. We'll call that the Eloist, around the 800s or so, Israel's powerful time. And then someone noticed that Deuteronomy has a particular set of phrases that recur in Joshua and Judges and Samuel and King. The Deuteronomist is clear. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery with a mighty arm and a strong hand. Many things recur. The Deuteronomist has a way of speaking. Time of good King Josiah, time of the exiles, 700s, 600s. And then there's a more clear, more formulaic, probably later written, the priestly documents. If you read Genesis 1, that's put in the priestly era. Very clear, very concise. Um, the creation of humanity is at the end of creation. And then there's the older talking snakes one. And that has the creation of the Adam at the very beginning. We don't have time to go into all of that, but they're written very differently. So how do you do that? Well, J, old, and then J and E kind of came together because you couldn't really separate uh, the Yahwist and the Eloist. And then the priestly that was supposed to be the newest, looks like they formulated some of the older stuff. Depends on which commentator you read. And so the Deuteronomist is the clearest of all of them. It does not solve why we've got clearly one strand here and clearly another here. And oh, by the way, we're missing some words. There's repetition, there's breaks, there's stops, there's incomprehensible sentences, which the English smooth out for you that's a story in Jonah. But I think some of the confusion is excellent. We do not get to box God. We don't get to say, I entirely understand this. There is antiquity, there is mystery, there is promise. And beyond everything in these chapters, it opens with the worship of the Lord our God. It concludes with the worship of the Lord our God. With the real presence with eating and drinking in the presence of God, with the revelation of the holy God seen by the people in fire and lightning. That's also Genesis 19. Um, I am sorry, Exodus 19. But we can't box this. We can get hints of what went on before, and we have here the most powerful connection, I can imagine, to the transfiguration. God is revealed. God eats with the people. The people are sprinkled with the blood of the covenant with God. They're in the presence of the holy God. And while that is said in the Bible, no one can see God and live, it's very clear that God does nothing to these folks. They sit and eat with God. They look up into heaven and see something like a pavement of stone, like um, fire and lightning. It wasn't necessarily sapphire stone. It was like that. And they're invited into God's presence, and this is early in Exodus. This is before the golden calf. This is before some of the other things that are going on. But you've got these multiple different strands, and J-E-D-P, though nice, don't begin to cover it. But at least they begin to say, 
there's something more going on here that we really don't get. And it might be kind of important. I mean, there are glimpses of ancient Hebrew reaching back, you know, before we can calculate time. Modern scholars will put the final editing somewhere around in the 400s. Interestingly, the um, Jews have had an ancient tradition of the great synagogue or the great assembly where the bits and pieces of the Holy Bible were put together somewhere in the 400s. Is that 400 BC? Yeah, BCE. Thank you, Deborah. All of this is before. We don't know. We weren't there. But as you read the close reading, it's clearest, I think, in the flood story. But it's pretty clear here that there are different hands of editors, and that does not change the fact that this is the word of the Holy God. Um, I come from a church where Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Did Moses have a hand in them? Certainly. At least I think so. But certainly not the final editors. There's too many different strands and different ways of writing. Kind of like if you see someone you know who's recently from England and they speak with very proper Queen's English now, King's English, or if you get an American from the South who has some of the same characteristics and draw, but may speak very differently, or one of us. You know, we just don't say things the same way. Now, oh, sorry, Rebecca, I was just going to say one of the things, though, is that all these editors would have been well-educated men, probably older guys to get that educated, right? So it wasn't like someone was a 22-year-old mother, you know, like, we can assume that all the editors were older educated guys? No, not at all. Okay, well, there we go. Thank you. Um, No, and that's what makes some of this so intriguing. Because some of them wrote, some of them had people who wrote for them. Our problem, Deborah, is we can't go back and know. Certainly, things were edited. In Jeremiah, it talks about Jeremiah being before the king, and the king didn't like his words of open up and let the Babylonians in. So the king burned the scroll. So then Jeremiah had his amuensis, his secretary, rewrite it, and he added things. Jeremiah, 34th chapter in there. But we know these were edited. So who knows quite what the original space was. That's why it's so much fun when we can find almost incomprehensible sections. The beginning of Jonah 4 is my favorite section where the Hebrew makes no sense at all, and yet we smooth it out that Jonah was very ech. The English translations work to make it comprehensible to us, and most of it is. Most of it is. But there's these very odd bits and pieces, and Probably, Deborah, educated people edited it at the very end, but almost definitely many of the original writers weren't your classic editor. Okay. Um, but it got edited, so it's hard to know. Um, and not all of it makes sense. There's words we don't get. The finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls was a phenomenal thing. You'll see in little footnotes, cue something, meaning we didn't know. Well, we've got this in the Q is Qumran, Dead Sea Scrolls. And they found, particularly Sam, it was a mess. And so they found different pieces that fit missing words, sentences stop, why Saul had to go and protect the people in the northern kingdoms. The Dead Sea Scrolls knew, but we didn't have that before. So, And even still, like even still, with as we have in the last century added more and more and more information as we've discovered more and more and more 
scripts from from digs, there are still words um, and whole phrases in the Hebrew text that it's the only place that that occurs. Yes. And we don't really know. And so we're following the context to translate something that doesn't exist anywhere else. You know, like if you get if you get a word and it shows up 300 times throughout the scriptures, it's pretty easy to say, okay, contextually, yes, this is what this is. It shows up once, and, and you don't have, and it, and it was written down <laughs> 2,000 years ago, and, and, and then that was it. Then we, we, if we lose the historical context to it and that connection, then it, it becomes a, it, it's, just, it's just fun. It's interesting to look at it. It becomes no less the word of God, but definitely limited by our understandings of things, and and you're just you're giving me these weird, awful flashbacks to my Hebrew class of having to look through some of these texts and pick out like the priestly source. And some of them we would take we would take colored pencils and we would underline yes. the which one came from who. And you would look at a, a page, a chapter, and it would just be one line, and then and the next line. It's not like this is nicely broken up, right? Here are three verses, and then here are seven verses, and here are four verses, and then here are twelve verses. Mm-hmm. But like in some of these texts, it is one line, and then a word, and then two lines, and then a half of a line, and a half of a line that go together, that are like very clearly from different sources, just based on the language that's being used in the original text, that they, they just got edited together, because it's a story that flowed and made sense, and, and in, a, in an oral tradition, as you share these, these texts and these stories back and forth with one another, your grandma might say something, and your grandma might say something, and you put them together, and they're like, yeah... Well, we like both grandmas, so we put them back. We, we just we make them fit, right? You know, and then it, and it, and it works. And unless you're paying attention, you don't notice. No, you don't. You um, don't. And then you start, yeah. The flood story without noticing the two by two and the seven pairs of clean and the one pair of unclean. That doesn't seem to stop anybody. So it, it does make sense. Underlining, we do this, we read with the Holy Spirit. Yes. And that's the only way that you and am I, do I got this part right? We got the Sadducees. Sorry, my, my language is going to sound like baby talk. We got the Sadducees, the Pharisees, but the Dead Sea Scrolls were probably written down to by those other guys, the Essenes, that were living in the caves, who in fact were not impressed with the way these guys were doing things. And in fact, lived super far apart on a big ass mountain somewhere and, <laughs> and not they, hang out in any way shape or form and they were not just a third group they were a group who was criticizing the other ones about how they were doing things at the temple oh yes oh, okay. although Deborah, okay. there were several other factions too okay. you mentioned the major ones yeah. but there were many others too there were those who were the heroic. Never mind. There were a whole bunch of sects in those days. Okay. Um, but you got some of the big guys. So we got a third grandma, and she's mad at the other two grandmas. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you're right. It's a good time. And maybe some other aunties sitting around the table. Absolutely, just adding in their edits, and grandma's right. not looking. Yep. Okay. Right? It's, and it's and that's the wonderful thing about looking at these sects and studying them. I mean, how? But then, but then the thing is, is that in different cultures. Modern cultures, we have we have picked out our favorite versions, too, right? So, like, yes. how did how did you learn that David killed Goliath? Children's literature. Yeah. Well, how did he do it? Oh, uh, a slingshot. A slingshot, right? Yep. A slingshot. And, and also, <laughs> fourteen <laughs> verses later, David kills Goliath by cutting off his head of the sword. I thought he cut it off after he. Depends on which version you read. It depends on which version. One version says that he was dead from the slingshot, and then a chapter and a half later, it says 
that he he had fallen to the ground and then was killed by when David slew him with his sword. Right, and and it, and it, and both of them, both of them speak of him killing him. Right, like okay. at the end of the day, he killed the guy. Yeah. But like there, but we have decided that in Sunday school, it's significantly better to teach kids that he chucked the rock at him than it is that he cut his head off. Snort, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, which is fine, but like it's there, it's still there. And so then, when you start reading it a little bit further in there, because you know we we pick out these stories that we like, and then when we start adding in the chapters around it, all of a sudden you're like. Well, that's not right. <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> Good time. And it depends, like you said, on who reads it and who's doing the translating and what you kind of focus on. But there's lots of echoing words here. The blood of the new covenant. Mm-hmm. Got yeah. that? Yeah. Might that have anything to do with what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration? God talking with the people. This is a mutuality. This is not coming down, but God says, this is how you will live. And the people say, gosh, we'll do what you do. God is separating the people out for their vocation. This is a holy people of God. And God is where they're eating and drinking in the very presence of God, which just a few sentences later is going to look like fire and lightning on yeah. the mountain. Um, and, and also that the, 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 the blood was not just used to sprinkle the people but also on the altar, altar. right? To set, aside, life. to set aside the sacred spaces. Not okay. just the sacred people, but the And we do the same thing, right? Now, do we throw blood on each other anymore? No. <laughs> but what's the symbol of our covenant with God? There you go. We use baptism as our symbol of the covenant, right? And so we, I mean, not necessarily in this congregation a lot, but we have, I think, used the palm branches and we, we, oh, we splurge the people, yes. right? You know, if you've been in a service where you get... You know, all of a sudden your glasses are full of water because some guy in a robe is throwing water on people, right? Um, but that's a symbol, right? The symbol of, of being part of the covenant with God. And we do the same thing when we, um, in, in higher in higher church traditions, where they would bless an altar or bless a new communion set or bless the organ or whatever, they would take the, the, the baptismal water and they would sprinkle that, right? Because it becomes part of the sacred, part of the set-aside um, space. In New Jersey, um, we bless the candles. Bless the candles. Yes. For, we would bless the, we, we say a prayer over our palms yep. on Palm Sunday. We don't necessarily throw water on them, but we, we, we add, invite people to raise their palms and we bless those palms that we're gathering with. We bless the candles for, we'll bless the ashes that we use on Wednesday. Um, I'll invite our young people to do that this Sunday. Fantastic. Um, it's just, these sorts of traditions get pulled forward. They're not just... They don't just rest here in this historical place. They're, they're things that we continue to do. Um, probably much. some modified way, thanks be to God. <laughs> Thank you, yes, please. It's hard to get blood out of yeah. the white rope. Two other th- sentences. One, um, notice the depth and the richness when we put all of this together. And contextually, it's separated very clearly. And two, um, Terence Fredheim, wonderful professor from Luther Seminary, wrote, Worship grounds the ins and outs of daily life in God obedience to the task set for the people, is in need of the sustenance provided by the ongoing experience of the promised presence of God in worship. And so this builds out, you know, treble what just verses 12 through 18 say and connects all of us again to the Holy God. And up to the transfiguration. Up to the transfiguration, which is where we are today. Matthew chapter 17. Thank you. 
17, verses 1 through 9, and I'll, I'll read that for us today. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud, a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The word of the Lord. Amen. God. All those times he's saying, I, my, my face is set to Jerusalem. And they keep saying, where are you going? And how can we follow? And he has already said, raised from the dead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they couldn't hear it. Over it made So the Transfiguration Sunday has been around since like 400 common era CE um, in our churches, but it's been celebrated by most of the like the, East, the Eastern churches, the Orthodox churches. It's usually in August. Um, we celebrate it here and now as this great transition time right, between Christmas and Epiphany uh, and Lent. Because textually it fits very nicely with what's going on, right? He's turned his face toward Jerusalem, and, and here we are. So, what are some bits and pieces that stick out to you? I think I've just been walking through the cloud with Moses. Ah, yes, the cloud with Moses, right? Here we go with Moses. Get another cloud with Moses. Absolutely. I've said this before, but I always want to. I was when I tried to visualize it to make artwork about it. I always want to know how Peter, James, and John knew that was Moses and Elijah because they don't have any pictures. And I always like if Moses stand there with the tablets, like it's easy, like oh, that's Moses. But otherwise, how did they know who it was? Yeah. That's one of my questions. I, I know they're waiting for Elijah to show back up, right? So, yeah, so that, that's helpful. That, yeah, there's some hopeful stuff in that. Or, oh, yeah. like, hey, that's Moses. Who's the other guy? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. So. Maybe he had his mantle on. I don't know. <laughs> so I'm curious about that. Yeah. I don't know. Well, we don't know. We, I mean, I suppose if Moses and Elijah showed up in front of you, you theoretically just kind of know. Would you know? I yeah. Know. Maybe the Holy Spirit would tell you. There was a no but how that was. Maybe they were wearing name tags. <laughs> <laughs> there aren't enough name tags. Super helpful. That would be super helpful. All the way around. Then in some artwork, I feel like in some artwork, Moses is like kind of normal size with glowing clothes, but he's down on the ground. And then on some artworks, they do like Jesus is really huge up in the cloud. That's the other thing I try to like figure and out. And Moses and Elijah are kind of secondary. On yeah. Lines, and then there's some tiny dark figures down below that are... Yes. So I just feel like yeah. when I try to imagine this. Yeah. 
think it's interesting to think about how that would have presented to them. Yeah. Enough to make these guys feel scared, maybe. Well, well yeah. to be fair, when the dead start rising, it's a fragging sort of thing. You're on a you're on a hill, everybody's face is shining, it's a little cloudy, it's, you know, a little nerve-wracking <laughs> all the way around. What you imagining, Sandy? I see smiling. <laughs> Um, there are some lovely echoes back and forth. Of course, some of the obvious ones with the, the bright lights and Moses and things like that. Um, but I also, so I noticed in our reading for Sunday, the text starts with Jesus took with him Peter, James, and his brother John. But the actual text in your Bible says six days later, Jesus took with him Peter. James and his brother John. And that six days later being left off, I think is super annoying because it's actually like a really big connection back and forth between these two texts because we just read that Moses sat up there on top of the mountain in that cloud for six days. days. Wow. And then on the seventh day, which as we just talked about is a day of completion, a number of completion, just like 40, right? Um, is when he encountered God. Nice. And so I think it's fascinating to look at some of those things. And, and this is so this is the only time in the Gospels that the number six is used. Hmm. It's the only time in the Gospels. And it is on this cusp, right, where Jesus is about to complete his mission on earth. And so um, just like in the first six days of creation, God said, looked at everything and said, this is very good. And yet, there was one more day. Um, we have this moment of Jesus on this mountaintop in this experience where um, we have the connection to the law and the connection to the prophets and the connection to God speaking um, pleasure, right, into the world that he is well pleased with his son. Um, and then there's still a seventh day. There's still, but it's, but we are not yet done, right? It's this, because uh, I think that for, for Peter, James, and John, uh, it's very possible that meeting God, Moses, and Elijah on the mountaintop of Jesus could be like, this is a good end to this story, right? Like, this is very big and very happy and very scary, but wonderful, right? This is a big moment. Um, and yet, just this little three-word hint tells us that the story is not yet complete. Like, there is more to it. One thing I love about Peter, James, and John is that they were going to, like, put up tents so they could live there. And I just always feel like in my own spiritual Christian walk that I try to understand things, but I feel like I'm really understanding them with a super limited brain. You know what I mean? Because the whole, it's kind of like the kindergartner making breakfast on Mother's Day or something. But it's like, we're going to put up tents for you. We're all going to live here. What do you want for supper? And, and like, they're just kind of living such a small part of it. Because for them, they, again, they think this is like, this is it. Yeah. We are at the end. We, this, is, this is Jesus coming to the fulfillment of his ministry. God has spoken. The prophet and the lawgiver are here. Like, this must be the end-all, be-all of situations, right? And yet, it is but the sixth day. Nice connection. Thank you. Yeah, that's going to stick with me. I, you can't preach about that, but it's going to stick with me no matter what. So that's, that's where that, I'm not preaching, so I don't care. That's fine. Um, other, other 
things, phrases, words, ideas that stick out? The, the one in verse 2, and his face shone. Yeah. Now that reminds of Moses coming out of the temple, having faced God. Mm-hmm. With the veil, right? And he has to put the veil on because blowing. people ask him to. Yeah. I, so I, I love that story and this story for that, that idea, the, the shining face. Um, but what I think happens is we get stuck in this idea that, um, that that was a really special moment that is unattainable by anybody else. And yet I bet that each of you can think of a time when you looked at somebody and their face shone. Like, I, and me, every time I see this text or read these words, I think of when my buddy Dan got married and he watched his bride come down the aisle. Cool. I mean, like, I literally just, like, the joy, the excitement, the nervousness, the, the, I mean, all, all of the emotions, but just the, the experience of that moment. I mean, some of you uh, have watched people meet kids and grandkids for the first time. I mean, um, there are these moments, right, where people, people's faces shine for us, right, after they have experienced something. Um, and that always reminds me of this, this concept of, like, a liminal space we oh. talk about. Are you familiar with that, that phrasing, right? Um, or the thin places in the world. Um, we talk about the, the Holy of Holies, the temple, as being a thin place. Um, talk about uh, Moses on the mountaintop as experiencing a thin, a thin place in the world. There are traditions in every culture in the world where, uh, I mean, if you go and you wander around um, the island of Great Britain, uh, you will find tours to thin places right? in, the, in the ancient Gaelic um, uh, spaces. Uh, where you can meet a little of the wisp, right? I mean, those ideas and culturally that exist, uh, we talk about them as uh, you go onto a mountaintop and you experience a thin space where you can experience God in a new sort of way. Experience thin spaces um, uh, at deathbeds, right? Yes, spectacularly so. It's as if the veil is almost not there anymore. Mm -hmm. You can feel, you can sense, you can see. There's something extra there, right? Yeah, those holy and sacred spaces that we that we set aside and that we have. Um, the when I visited the nine eleven memorial for the first time, that whole space feels like a thin space, right? Uh, there's an old tradition. I don't, I don't know what culture it comes from, but the idea is is that if you stand and you raise your hand up in the air, three feet above you is the thin space, mm. right? Mm. So it's always there. Yeah. It's always right. Oh, right there. And so you are always just three feet away from experiencing the sacred in a, in, a, in a unique sort of way. And so if you're just three feet away from experiencing the sacred, then you're really pretty much always at risk of experiencing the sacred, right? Because it's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a holy thing. But also, um, they were terrified for a reason, right? Like, it's a, it's a, it's a, it can be a scary thing. It can be a risky thing, right? To experience thin spaces and to experience the sacred and experience the holy. 
Okay, so in Juno, and there, outside of Juno, there's something called the Shrine of St. Teresa, and it's like, it's, you're supposed to be quiet when you visit there, because um, people are in meditation and stuff, but I, they have outdoor stations of the cross, and I saw whales breaching while I was sitting on the shore with my husband and my son, but um, they have this Shrine of St. Teresa cards, and I just want to say that, like, I've spent a lot of my youth thinking, what is God's will for me? What is What am I supposed to be doing? And, you know, it was like very specific. I was looking for very specific directions, like turn left here. And um, and the card that I have from there for the Shrine of St. Teresa says, um, her quote is, At last, my sweet Jesus, I have found my vocation, and my vocation is love. And then in her silhouette, the, the nature is in there. It, it's really beautiful. Anyway, it's very special for me. So That's awesome. I think, I think that's so cool. Um, I also think that it's interesting that when people talk about experiencing thin spaces, um, they don't do anything. You talked about sitting yeah. on the beach and watching the whales breach in this thin space, right? Um, when, when we walk with people in their final moments, we aren't doing anything. You're just there, right? Mm -hmm. and, it, and in so many of the sacred spaces and the thin spaces that I've experienced, it is not about building three tents, right? It is about being in the moment. Um, be, still. be still, right? Be still. That's nice, Sandy. Um, when the prophet is on the mountaintop and there's uh, an earthquake and there's thunder and there's all the things and God shows up in the, the, in the silence, right? Um, in the stillness. And, and he just sits there and waits for the silence to experience God. He stands. stands there and waits in the silence. And Moses hung out in the cloud for six days waiting do you think space, right? he and, and Joshua played cards or something? We would assume so. Like they pulled up a dreidel with them or something <laughs> like that. Uh, well, Joshua disappears. We don't know what happened to him. Moses goes up by himself. Joshua starts, and then he disappears. Okay. And, but that's that's fine. Well, he may have been left down at that, that uh, top camp. And We're not told. He wasn't yeah. up there with Moses, but he wasn't down with the other guys, so no yeah. idea. It's just one of those. He got tired. It's a big mountain. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a lot of mountains, and there's a lot of climbing. They've been walking around for a while already. And in the spot you described with the fire and the lightning and the earthquakes and the storm, that still small voice or the sound of active silence, those are two more words we can't translate. Yeah. yeah. Nobody agrees on how to translate those yeah. things. We don't know. One more time. You know? We have to solve it in our own minds to hang on, but we don't know, yeah. which I particularly love. Um, and all of them are beautiful in their own way. Yes. In, in, the, in the sound of a gentle wind and the sheer silence. And the, I mean, each of, the, each of the translations that has come out of that is beautiful in its own way. And I think meaningful for people in different ways, which is the beauty of it, too. So, um, I also want to mention just one other random thing that came up in my in my study of this that I hadn't thought of before, um, but that not only was Jesus's face transfigured, but also his clothes were transfigured, right yeah. into the dazzling white. Um, and we, many of you, have 
part of conversations here over the past several years where we have looked at and talked about the, the reality that um, whiteness equating to holiness and darkness equating to unholiness, basically, is has problematic theological undertones that have leached into our society, right? Um, I think that it's really interesting that if you think about just specifically the dazzling whiteness in this text, one of the commentators that I was reading argued that this places Jesus, this, this talks so much about his death because it places him in the position of chief mourner. Because traditionally and historically, the color white was for mourning. Um, for grief, right? And, it, and to some extent, it still is, right? So when you see, when think about it peacefully, right? It's the white, right, that we see. Think about our um, uh, baptismal Paul, our Paul for our casket, right? It's a giant white sheet. Um, traditionally, we would wear white vestments um, at funerals, right? And um, the, the robes that we wear um, are symbols of baptism, just like the Paul is a symbol of baptism, just like, you know, when babies come to baptism, they wear their tiny white cute dresses, right? And then the Paul becomes that symbol of the cute tiny white dress at the end of life, right? There's this connection back and forth. And, and white is, is a symbol of mourning. And so his argument in the commentator's argument was that becoming tra- transfigured into the dazzling white is a symbol um, kind of a code that, that Jesus becomes the chief mourner in this. That, that, um, and then the next time that we see dazzling white will be the angel outside of the tomb who shows up in dazzling white, right? Nice. Um, and I just think that that's, uh, I think that that's really cool. And also, the women who came to the tomb that day probably would have been wearing White. I think we, we often think about, because we, we apply some of our modern day contexts of, well, you wear black to a funeral or something like that, right? Yeah. But they, they wouldn't have been. They would have been wearing undyed white for that, for that purpose that day. Nice. And so in that moment, Jesus shows up with them, right? Because when you go to a funeral, um, we traditionally wear darker colors, more muted colors, or whatever it is you want. Sometimes there are people who say, I want everybody to show up in orange flannel shirts, or whatever, and people just do it, right? Because this is, it's a symbol of of community together. You, you, you gather with the people who are grieving, right? Um, and in this moment, Jesus is doing the same thing. Jesus is gathering and wearing appropriately what the people were, would have been wearing in their grief. As Moses was with the people gathered. As Moses was, yeah. I'm glad you said that because I've got a picture of my grandmother's death in the the cemetery. Um, One of these old, old black and white pictures. And everybody's dressed in white. Nice. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. It has not been that long that that the color transition has shifted within our culture, right? I I could never understand that, that, but that experience. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I, I think that's kind of fun. So that would have been in let's say nineteen fifteen, maybe. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. That's really cool. Art really helps me like go deeper because when like when I was trying to do the 
don't imagine beautiful pictures, you guys. But I'm trying to do um, Jesus' face during the transfiguration. And so I'm really reading over and over, like, I know what's cool they're going to be like, but is his, and his face shone, but it doesn't say his face is white. I didn't think it didn't. Light. Shone like the sun. Shone like the sun. And then we know that sunlight is all the colors mixed together that get separated out. And so you're looking at your box of soft pastels or your crayons or whatever, and you're thinking, what colors do I use for Jesus' face? And for me, that is like a huge theological, spiritual experience. Like, what color am I going to pick? And um, to think, like, sort of deeply about what I think about that. And I really, I think brown faces and black faces are really beautiful. And I believe Jesus was a person of color. And so it's really hard to slide over to your lighter pastels thinking, but at my core, I believe he was a beautiful brown person. Anyway, it just, the struggle's real. I think that, so as you were saying that, it suddenly struck me. Um, If Jesus' face is shining like the sun, and this is a mountain covered in clouds. So you were looking through water droplets at Jesus' face shining like the sun. What are you going to see? Yeah. You're going to see a rainbow. Oh, man, that's right? awesome. Like, that's, that's what pop- Because when the sun shines that. through water droplets, you get the spectrum, right? Like, it would have been just this vibrant sort of... Or if you've ever flown above the clouds, right, and the sun hits those white clouds and pops off, right? The brilliance of what you're seeing is... I mean, you shut the shade because it's way yeah, too bright, it's right? So bright, it <laughs> it's hurts. so bright, it hurts, you know. And it's just that that dazzling sort of nature is is the word, right? That's the word. Yep. Like that's all. That's the only way you can describe it. Sometimes we feel like that bright light comes into us. You know what I mean? Like kind of penetrates into us. Yeah. That's the thin space. Very much so. Any other final thoughts today? Because that was great. That was a lot of fun. Maybe Jules will preach about rainbow faces on Sunday. That'd be great. Nobody tells me. We'll see what happens. No, not colored lines. Yeah. Oh, man. Yes. I remember Gosh, white clothes on the woman is like a mind blowing thing for me. Say that one more time. The white clothes white on the, because I'm trying to do the women at the bottom of the cross and the women at the tomb or whatever, and like, the same thing's like, okay, what colors did they really have back then? What were they dyeing their fabrics with? But the whole idea that they would have been wearing white because they would have been grieving is just huge. Probably. Yeah. Or at least, a, you know, a, some sort of a, a shawl of white or something, yep. I mean, you know, that, that symbol. Satan bud. That's why our hair turns. Are we done with our? Yeah. Uh, just a just a couple of notes for you all coming up this week. Um, worship on Sunday, usual time. Holistic Pastor Care Team is meeting. I know. Yes. On this Sunday, some of you are part of that. Some of you are a part of that right after worship. Um, we are also going to burn the palm branches on Sunday to make the ashes for Ash Wednesday. And our Seeds of Faith and Confirmation students are doing that. But if you're around in that, you know, like 1045-ish uh, after worship, no, we're going to do it inside. It's more fun that way. No, of course we're doing it outside. That's <laughs> 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 um, fire alarm. Yeah. Oh, that's fine. Uh, we don't have any fire alarms, so it's not a problem. That will just not go off. It's going to be great. Um, not outside. Then followed by Ash Wednesday worship on Wednesday. And we're going to do a meal at 6 o'clock. We're going to do soup and bread and lovely things like that and worship at 6.30 right after that. And that will be our pattern all the way through Lent is 6 o'clock meal, 6.30 worship, 
Oh, it'll be Lent. And then Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, we'll do 6.30 worship those nights.